Father, we've just sung, when we feel afraid, when we think we've lost our way, still you're there right beside us. Nothing will I fear as long as you are near. Please be near me to the end. Father, that's uh, really the message of this sermon. Please, Lord, help us not to fear. Please, would we be comforted to know that in Christ you are near. So please help me as I speak. Help us all as we listen. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, There is nothing to fear except fear itself. Pithy. Deep. But utter nonsense. Utter, utter nonsense. I mean, we, we have fear for a reason, don't we? Um, fear is the, the innate instinct which tells us that something scary is coming, so we need to get out of the way. And if you ask most men, what do you fear? Most of them will say, oh, no, I don't, I don't really have any fears. We, we want to sound sort of macho and, and tough, don't we? But it's not true. We, we all have fears. There, there might not be um, irrational phobias, like, like a fear of spiders or something like that. But we all have fears. Sometimes that they're, just, they're just slightly harder to, to, to articulate, to, to put into words. For many of us, I think what we fear most is, is what people think of us. So that might be at work or in a social setting or maybe even here at church. We're terrified of the prospect of not being liked, of not being approved of. We fear letting people down, of, of, of being a disappointment to them. We fear being shunned for publicly being a Christian. We fear what people think of us. Others of us, though, we, we kind of fear things which are out of our control, things which make us feel insecure or uncertain. So perhaps, I don't know what it would be for you, perhaps the prospect of losing your job, perhaps the prospect of one of your kids falling really ill. Or maybe it's that, I often get this, that the feeling of just things just piling up around you hovering over you like, like a dark cloud, things out of our control. Ultimately, of course, many of us, we, we fear the big one. We fear death. We don't like thinking about it, but it's there, isn't it? It's just looming on the horizon. We know it's coming for each of us, and it might fill us with fear. We all have fears, even the macho men amongst us. So the question is not, do you have fears? The question is, what are you going to do with them? What will you do with your fears? And really, that's what we're thinking about today. And it gets us right to the heart of the Christian, of the Christian message, but also the Christmas message. I love the, the carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem. It has that wonderful line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So yeah, we're in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, it's page 691 in the Bible's open in front of you. And here we find King Ahaz of Judah in the midst of a terrifying situation. He is told, which is our first point today, don't fear the visible threat. Don't fear the visible threat. If you would follow with me in verse 1 in your Bibles, please. I'd love you to follow along. It's a complicated passage, so we need to look at it together. Verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Romalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. 
but they could not yet mount an attack against it. A lot of names here. It's a little bit complicated, isn't it? So let let me simplify it. Imagine, if you would, a school playground. Ahaz, king of Judah, he's just happily playing in the corner in his sand pit, happily making sandcastles, whatever you do in a sand pit. But from the sand pit, little Ahaz, he spies two bullies coming towards him. One of them's the king of Israel. He used to be Judah's friend, but not anymore, because another king, a king of Aram, the other bully, he's been a bit of a bad influence. So two bullies are coming towards the king of Judah. So Israel and Aram, they form this alliance, and they're coming to besiege the city. They're coming to starve them out. So what will King Ahaz do? Look at verse 2. Now, the house of David, that's the king's household, was told. Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. I don't know if you've ever seen a forest in the midst of a violent storm. It's strange, isn't it? Trees which are often so sturdy, so so solid... Suddenly they're flexing and bending, they're being tossed about, they're moaning and they're creaking and they're cracking. And so Ahaz and all the people of Judah with him, normally they're like that, they're so secure. But suddenly their hearts are shaking within them, they're freaking out. And who could blame them? Two powerful nations are just on their doorstep. They're coming to besiege their tiny city. Their men will be killed, their women will be raped, and their houses will be destroyed. This, friends, is terrifying. Now, our fears, I don't know what your fears are. Maybe you're thinking of them right now. Our fears might not be as deadly as that. But they're no less real, are they? It's natural, isn't it, to be, to be fearful of what lies just on the horizon. But the good news is, friends, we have a loving God who doesn't want us to be afraid. Just look what happens next in verse 3. God sends that the prophet Isaiah to comfort Ahaz. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shezashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the washman's field. Say to him, be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it it's a bit like that wartime poster you might have seen it god says to ahaz don't be afraid keep calm and carry on see those two armies on your horizon they might look fierce and angry and scary but they're a bit like this match here and they're gone these bullies are just smoldering stubs blown matches it's all their plans to invade jerusalem and set their little puppet king over you these plans will come like this match to nothing don't fear the visible threat instead our second point have faith 
in the sovereign God. Follow with me in verse 7. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. This attack will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. See, the sovereign Lord, he reminds King Ahaz who's the real king. And it isn't Rezin, king of Aram. And it isn't the king of Israel, dubbed here as simply Ramalia's little boy. The only king is the sovereign Lord. And he promises Ahaz, neither of these two bullies are going to harm you. In 65 years, Israel, they won't even be a people, let alone a threat. So have faith in me, God says. Stand firm in me. Because if you don't do that, you're just not going to stand firm at all. And I don't, I don't know what you would have done in that, in that situation. There, are there, there they are, two terrifying armies just on your horizon. You can see them from your city gates. They're a visible threat. You can see them. And then up pops a prophet speaking for an invisible God whom you can't see. He says, nah, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it, mate. If I had Ahaz, I'd, I'd probably want some proof, wouldn't you? I'd want Isaiah to give me a sign showing me that God really is sovereign, that he really is in control of this terrifying circumstance I'm finding myself in. And do you know what? Graciously, that's exactly what God does. Look at verse 10 over the page. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. What do you make of Ahab's response here? Sounds very pious, doesn't it? Sounds like a pretty good answer. Ahab's faith is so strong in God. No, I don't need a sign. Thank you very much, prophet Isaiah. But scratch a little beneath the surface and we find out why he doesn't want a sign. See, the reason is not because his faith is so strong, but because his faith is already placed in someone else to save him. In 2 Kings chapter 16, which narrates this period of history, we learn that when Ahaz learned of this scary attack coming his way, he runs to the temple of God, not to pray, but to strip it of all of its silver and all of its gold. And then he parcels all of it up and sends it off to Assyria, which is a bit like the superpower of the day. And he writes to the king of Assyria, asking him, pleading him to come help. In his letter, Ahaz writes, I am Assyria's servant. I am Assyria's son. What a massive slap to God's face. Instead of trusting the promise of the all-powerful, sovereign God, instead of remembering that he was God's servant and God's son, instead Ahaz throws in his lot with Assyria, hoping that Jerusalem's siege defences, like this aqueduct where the scene is taking place, would protect the city long enough for Assyria to come along. Now, putting all this back into playground terms, if you've got lost through that complexity, when Ahaz sees the two bullies coming towards him as he sits in his sandpit, 
He should have gone to the head teacher, shouldn't he? But instead, he buys the protection of an even bigger bully, Assyria. And then he pegs it to the toilets, locks himself in, and, and waiting for his big protector to come and help him. That's easy to laugh at King Ahaz for being a bit of an idiot. But we need to stop and slow down for a moment, because are we so very different? When visible threats loom on our horizon, when our fears are right there before us, what becomes our siege defences? What becomes the Assyria which we hope will come and save us? So if we fear what people think of us, for example, perhaps we, we, we might trust in our own appearance or, or maybe our work ethic or, or, our, or our ranking relatively compared to others in our, in our workplace. If we're fearing insecurity or uncertainty, maybe we cope by trying to maintain some form of level of control, control over our health, control over our relationships, control over our finances. If we're the sort of people who fear humiliation or rejection for being Christians, maybe we survive by just simply keeping quiet. Keeping quiet about Jesus, our Saviour. See, when we fear a visible threat, we will either have faith in the sovereign God or we will have faith in our own siege defences, our own Assyrians. Well, let's return to the story. Remember, Ahaz didn't want a sign from God, but God decides to give him one anyway. And this is our third point. Look for the sign of Emmanuel. Follow with me, verse 13. Verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Which means from your footnote, God with us. Now at this point, friends, we, we've got to restrain ourselves because every single Christmassy instinct in us is telling, oh, the Virgin is Mary and oh, Jesus, of course, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us, isn't he? Restrain yourselves. We're going to get to them in a moment. But first of all, let's try and work out what this meant back then for Ahaz. You see, originally, this was a message of judgment. Now, follow with me again from verse 14. I want to show you this. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin, or literally, the young woman, will, will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And that sounds like good news, right? But look what happens next. Then the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. For Ahaz, the birth of this Emmanuel child is a bit like a ticking time bomb. You can imagine it ticking away in the corner. It's a countdown, if you like, to when God's judgment will fall. 
when Assyria, that big bully who Ahaz tried to buy off, will eventually come back and bite him. So Ahaz is given this sign, so he'll know exactly when this judgment will come. He's, given that he's told to look out for four key details. Firstly, a young woman will have a son. Secondly, before the boy becomes an adult. Thirdly, those two bullies, Aram and Israel, will be destroyed. At which point, fourthly, Assyria will come and wreck Judah. And if we had time, we could read chapter 8 and see all four of those things happening in order. Firstly, Isaiah's wife, a young woman, gives birth to a son. Secondly, before the son learns how to speak. Thirdly, Aram and Israel are destroyed. Fourthly, Assyria attacks Judah, utterly lays them waste. And suddenly the name of this child makes sense, doesn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. God is with Ahaz. He is with Judah, but not in a good way. He is with them without warmth, without love, without affection. Instead, he's with them in intimate, personal hostility. I think this passage offers us a glimpse of the reality of what Jesus calls hell where people find themselves in God's presence forever, but experiencing only his anger. They might say, Emmanuel, God is with us, but in judgment. One of the most famous preachers of the last century was a guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones. God used him mightily in a, a revival in Wales. But one of his uh, critic, or a number of his critics used to say he's a bit of a, bit of a scaremongerer. He's a bit of a, you know, hellfire and brimstone sort of guy. To which he, he made this response. I'm not afraid of being charged, as I frequently am, with trying to frighten you. Because that is exactly what I'm trying to do. If the wondrous love of God in Christ Jesus and the hope of glory are not sufficient to attract you, then such is the value I place on the worth of your soul. Then I'll do my utmost to alarm you with a sight of the terrors of hell. Well, out of his infinite love, God gives us passages like this because we need to see, we need to see just how foolish we are to try and trust in anything but him. Whatever our our siege defences are, whatever our Assyria might be, they're going to leave us disappointed. They're going to come back and bite us. Because, friends, when we stand before God on that last day, if our faith is in ourselves, we will not be saved. If we're trusting in our goodness, if we're trusting in our church attendance or our service or our Bible knowledge, these things will just come back and bite us. As we heard earlier, if you don't stand firm in God, you will not stand firm at all. But our God does want us to stand firm in him, which is why he's given us this sign of Emmanuel. Originally, it was a message of judgment, but for us here today, it is a message of salvation. And this brings us neatly to Matthew chapter 1, the Christmas story. It's familiar, isn't it? But we had to see that backdrop, otherwise we wouldn't really see the wonder of it. 
Because Isaiah's prophecy is ultimately, of course, fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew wrote 500 years after Isaiah, but the situation facing God's people is actually very, very similar. They are again under the threat of a foreign army, this time the Romans. And King Ahaz's royal descendant is a carpenter called Joseph. And he likewise finds himself in in a position of great uncertainty. He discovers that the young girl he's engaged to is pregnant with someone else's child. And in that culture, you can imagine the shame and scandal that would cause. She would most likely be stoned to death if she were publicly found out, and he would would face public dishonor. The threat to Joseph is visible. And just like Ahaz, he was tempted to trust in his own ingenuity to try and arrange a quick and quiet divorce. But once again, into that situation of threat and fear, God offers the house of David a sign. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. He is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. I hope you see that this time there's a difference. The baby is not a ticking time bomb for judgment. No, this baby is here to save. In fact, as the angel announces, that's what the name Jesus means. He's going to save his people. Not from the visible threat of the Romans, but but from the invisible threat of our sin. And the judgment it deserves. And friends, this is really what what Christmas is all about. And I I know a family that they live down in in Wimbledon and, and they like to design their own Christmas card every year that, that sort of arty family got too much time on their hands I think and uh, they, they, each year they make a sort of a cryptic clever Christmas card and uh, one, of the, one of the years was, was this it was just a, on the front it was just row after row of mince pies mince pies mince pies row after row after row you know neatly festively dusted mince pies mince pies mince pies all the way along and then smack bang in the middle was a hot cross bun Christmas is really about Easter Jesus was born in order to die, to save his people from their sins. Friends, if we know Jesus, then instead of living in fear of judgment, we can enjoy living in the certain hope of salvation. Instead of facing an eternity of God's anger as his enemies, we have an eternity before us as his very own children. Instead of experiencing his personal, intimate hostility, we can have his personal, intimate love. Again, I think that carol puts it best. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But some of us might be thinking, well, okay, great. God showed up back then. He saved us from our sins. And then he just went away again, didn't he? Where's he now? Where is he now with my current fears, with my current suffering, with with my current difficulties? I think Matthew's Jewish readers are still left facing the hostile Romans. And we're still left facing the prospect of of living in a world hostile to Jesus. And Tom asked us earlier, go and share the Christmas message, invite people to events. And you might be filled with terror at that prospect. Where is Jesus now? Well, please turn with me, if you would, to the very end of Matthew's Gospel. The very end. Chapter 28. It's page 1001. 
And I want to show you something wonderful. Matthew chapter 28, page 1001. Let me read from verse 16, once we're all there. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. What a terrifying prospect. But look at the last sentence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you see how Matthew's gospel begins and ends with Emmanuel? He was with his people then, and he's with us now by his Spirit. He is with you in your fears. He is with you in your pain. He is with you in your loneliness. He is with us as a church. He's with us in our witness. He's with us in our efforts to make Jesus known this Christmas, as we hand out invites, as we uh, write notes to colleagues and friends, as we deliver cards through doors. He is with us. I heard it said, all fear in the Christian life springs from our doubt that God is with us. Do you think that's true? All fear in the Christian life springs from our doubt that God is with us. Well, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Praise God for Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we have a saviour who is not unsympathetic to our fears, not unsympathetic to the situation we're in, living in a hostile world. Thank you that we have a saviour who took on flesh, who is God incarnate, and who understood our fears and doubts. But Lord, we praise you that he is with us now. And we praise you, Lord, for giving us him this sign. So Lord, we pray that this Christmas we would be willing and eager and joyful to share this salvation with others who, who may well still be under that judgment, still trusting in themselves. Lord, please use us and send us out to your praise and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.